1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
2: I, I suppose I should should start by explaining why we're all here, just in case there is anybody who's wandered off the street and doesn't actually know what this mysteriously and hard-to-pronouncedly named magazine is. Um, Pratkrit started uh, just over two years ago when I had a personal blog, um, which really was just an extension of the pleasure of my own reading in as much as I've always enjoyed poems one-to-one, up close, um, with that nitty-gritty intimacy uh, that you only get by returning to something much loved uh, and exfoliating, uncovering, uh, tussling with more layers every time you meet it. Uh, And I guess I wanted to share that with other people. But what I quickly learnt was uh, I'm not very efficient, so I was writing a blog post every 9 to 16 months. So I think the best idea I ever had was to say, this needs more people involved. Um, and the first people I got involved were my wonderful co-editors, um, Vidyan Raventhiran, who sadly can't be here tonight, and Di George, um, who will be helping um, host the evening in as much as he'll be um, doing the Q&A later. Uh, and so the, the three of us, we became this editorial team, which has managed to rope in these wonderful people and some of you wonderful people as well. And since then, Pratkrit has just gone on from strength to strength. And I think um, it would be immodest to say too much about how wonderful it is, wouldn't it? Uh, but uh, it, it gives me uh, unalloyed delight every time a new issue comes out. Uh, and... People say things on the internet like, uh, if Prakrit had merchandise in their colours, I would buy a t-shirt, which you can't really get better than that, can you? Um, Gosh, people are falling over in the back. Hope you're okay. Um, So, uh, yeah, I'm going to introduce each of our readers in turn, um, each of these four wonderful poets have published with us in the last year or so and I think can give a flavour of the sort of thing that we do at Prakrit. Um, they've each generously allowed us to publish a couple of their poems on our website uh, where they have been read by thousands and thousands of people um, uh, in a impressively and surprisingly international way and I think this lineup shows the internationalism of the magazine as you'll hear in a moment uh, we really do have a readership flung all over the world um, especially in the states but in the Caribbean uh, in Asia in Africa people are reading this mag all over the world which I think for me shows the power of digital magazines, which until this point, I suppose, had been sort of devalued in the, the journal landscape, but I think really are where, where the future lies, no? Um, so, yeah, on that note, let me start by introducing the first of our readers. Um, R.A. Villanueva, uh, and I'll let you in on a secret here that the R stands for Ron, <laughs> um, is an American poet now based in London. Uh, his first collection, Reliquaria. Um, oh, my goodness, I think that might be Ron's, Ron's baby arriving. Is that right? <laughs> 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 Just in time to hear daddy. Right, so um, I won't embarrass the family further. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Ron's first collection, Reliquaria, from University of Nebraska Press came out in 2014 and it won the prestigious Prairie Schooner Prize. Um, He's one of the founding editors of Tongue Journal Um, and... I really received Ron's poems in in the slush pile, in in, in the Prakrit inbox. And I I sort of was stealing myself to say, I'm sorry, we we don't take submissions usually. But then I I opened the attachment and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't turn down this poet, even though we don't take submissions. And that was how it began. Um, I do worry about using words like heft and grist, which seem to have um, a sort of element of cliché to them um, in as much as they're words that have that aspect of physicality and texture to them. But those are the sorts of words that come to mind when I read Ron's poems and I think are incredibly true of them. Um, The title of his book, Reliquaria, shows, I think, the way that he's a poet who strains against the capacities of English um, to say what he wants to say, in his vocabulary, in his syntax in the way that he reaches into other languages other cultures, other experiences to do that Um, and I think you can see that straining and that ambition in the experimentation of the deep note that he wrote about one of his poems for us at Prakrit he was writing about a sonnet and he wrote an essay in 14 parts which is just the most beautiful thing I encourage you to look it up Um, and without further ado I'll hand you over to Ron
3: mine will be a beautiful service one when you bury me fold my arms neat over the plateau of a double-breasted suit the angle of the lapel matching my now permanent expression pressed and chemical I will look content but confused As when you watched me turn in my sleep, dreaming of a Golgotha in beeswax, a coffin for swallows, a toothless auger reading the flights and cries of owls. You will hear the cadence of my voice, the snapping oblique of my laugh among the votives and canticles. You will trace with the tips of your thumbs lines of demarcation between the fallow of my scalp and the dunes of my forehead. Quiet, you will paste stray hairs back into their place, too. Memento mori. All sod and taproot now. All bulb and tuber and stem shoot. Mulch throb lush with worms and slugs. We are never worth more than this. Thrum of the earth clatter bulge of cicada shells along a coffin's hinges, teak and scented cedar flushed with compost, an elegy of rot, this counterfeit reliquary. If you each day clutch our pillows, press them to your face, pray to take in some atom of me all into the hollows of your chest, yes, I promise my ghost will find you should you want someone else to love? Good evening. Can you read something together? Okay, this is a nice natural line of demarcation, actually. So if you are on this side of the room, you will say a refrain, and on this side of the room, you will have a refrain. Yes? Okay. This is, bless you, Jan. This is your line. The world has always been ending. ending. Your line is yes. (laughs) Yes. So um, I'm Filipino American. Um, I think a lot about what's going on as a person of color back home. I think a great deal about the politics and the rhetoric of home. I think a great deal about um, what it means to watch my country, the place where I was born, sort of rend itself. Um, and so this poem is, is called Mass. The world has always been ending, I said. And you said, yes. today, half lost in the senderos. Among its dry brush and thorns, I hear my mother's voice in the rocks. I see in the rust plains, and lava bulbs, and cairns stacked as markers her cells. Massing upon her heart, lungs running riot along her sternum. Soon the nights of marrow talk, of jabs and the seven last words. Serum nights with viols, the joyful mysteries Thumbs on decades falling asleep. I light a match with the end of another and warm her poisons and gauze for the new year. She said, and I said yes. Today we walk bearing hymnals and lilacs for the gazebo green, for stairwells and chalks drawn to mark the hem of a body. We place each place and give its dirge in the shape of teeth, slugs, a tongue pressed to concrete, its fugue scored for sirens and windpipes, pellet guns and bells. We bless the blue of this wide winter sky above our city for once. Let it mean more to us than smoke, more than blood starved of air beneath skin, more than their anthems hollowed or a field for stars dying and dead. he said, and you said, today they are burning the names of the boys they are shooting in the street. This because we and they know ashes mean undone leads and muzzles loosened, floodlights and flares, eyes doused with milk. At the chapel for Vespers, a woman holds a globe. She is decked with poppies and birch tar and foil. Her son colors in a book of heralds and dragons, traces his palm. Now, the Magnificat. Now, I am down on my knees, sure only that the fires will come again and again. My son was born in December. This is the first poem I've written since he's arrived. Um, It is a sonnet, I think. It is a sonnet. Um, Last year's uh, National Poetry Day theme here in the UK was light and being contentious and contrarian. I thought, why does it always have to be light? Why can't we praise the dark and the shadow? Um, And then when uh, we went to the ultrasound technician, the ultrasound technician said to us, when you have an ultrasound, you look for the darkness. Because that's where all the blood is. And I said, my God, that's a poem. I will steal that. Thank you. <laughs> this is Tenebre. Tenebrae is Latin for shadow. Tenebrae. Shame the light. For what grief it brings the eye even shut. Radiant the slaughterhouse. Phosphorus shells bright fed on bone and wedding sweets. Damn the light. Damn the glow of their sirens, their liturgy of flag to kerosene, torch to altar and crossbeam. Praise instead the night, its starless basilica void. Praise the black of new ventricles, new blood. Praise his holy ruckus and jolt, this boy as echo, as shadow, as high relief. Glory be his mouth, warm on the soft dark of her breast. And I'll end with uh, the poem that Sarah was so kind enough to take from the transom and the slush pile. Saudade is a, um, a Portuguese word that is largely untranslatable into English, or so they say. It's a kind of piercing, visceral homesickness. And so, um, living here, I think a lot about Brooklyn and New Jersey and the Hudson and Manhattan and all the people I miss and who I hope miss me. Saudade. Yes, now, like you, I wonder where is the patron saint of exiles and far districts, this prefecture of salt licks and pollen? And who... In those alleys are blue with plaques. And who among those martyrs gives the nieces we have yet to hold close our faces to learn, our names to try? Who will have our pills for us? Heat the bacon fat. Steep the tea. Everywhere wine and moss. Everywhere fog. The wrecks of ships around the Whitefish Point and bodies the lake won't give back, you say, like that, a love like that. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Ron. I think that was so beautiful, your call and response there, uh, which really captures for me something important at the heart of the endeavour of prakrit, which is that it is a dialogue. It's a dialogue between um, the poet and the critic, the prak and the crit. Uh, and I can't think of anybody who embodies uh, that more perfectly than Maureen N. MacLean uh, who was actually the occasion for me organizing this uh, whole reading because she's in the UK for a rare and brief couple of weeks, and I thought, my goodness, we can't miss this chance. Um, Maureen N. McLean, as she appears on her books, I'm pleased to say I have no idea what the N stands for, and I like it that way because it lets me imagine that N as a sort of integer which could stand for anything, uh, including the. Ms N of Maureen's latest volume which is sitting in sexy hot pink over there and buy it here because you can't buy it anywhere else on that side of the, this side of the Atlantic as John said and um, yeah, N as an integer, N as possibility. Um, the self in Maureen's poems is um, various, multiple, and hard to pin down. Um, and she also displays, with a brilliance and subtlety and intelligence I don't see very often, um, the way that ourselves are made up of the fragments of other selves. Um, and I hope that that will be um, coming through in the poem from Prat which uh, I think she might do us the honour of reading tonight, um, I actually fell in love first with uh, Maureen's book, um, this green one, called My Poets, uh, which uh, is a genre-bending, um, hard-to-describe, uh, experimental exercise in hybridising memoir and criticism. Uh, and I have to say, it was one of the inspirations behind the direction that Prakrit has taken in the last two years. Um I I think we like sitting at at the the borders of genres. Um, But then I I, I looked up her work as a poet in her three previous collections, Same Life, World Enough, and This Blue, um, the last of which was a finalist, much deservedly for the National Book Award. Um, And... Maureen has done Prakrit the honour of um, FSG, her publishers. I think saw our feature in Prakrit and put an extract from it on the back of that book. So move over the New York Times. <laughs> Prakrit is is taking over the back real estate of of American American poetry books. Uh, and I, what, what I said then and what I'll say now is that Maureen's poems are freewheeling and yet intricately stitched, full of multi-layered tonalities. Um, These are poems that will make you laugh, cry and think in quick succession or all at once. So get ready.
4: Oh, it's an honor to be here, and it's so wonderful to appear under the aegis of Prakrit and Sarah's and Dye's and Vidyan's sponsorship, and with these wonderful poets. So, uh, And also at the LRB, which um, published an episode in the new book, Mizen. So it's very exciting to be here and have this kind of extraordinary um, London convergence. And I thought I'd read a few episodes from this new book, Mizen, which is a, uh, I guess you could say it's a kind of... um Wordsworthian or anti-Wordsworthian growth of a poet's mind, um, uh, intellectual, sexual, literary, political, and veers in and around different nodes. And so a few of those nodes today I'll share with you. And there are a bunch of tutelary spirits um, who ghost the book or move the book. And uh, romantic poets tend to ghost me a lot for good and for ill. Um, so Shelley and Wordsworth, et cetera, run around, Mary Shelley, Frankensteinian monsters, Marianne Moore, Beyoncé, etc. Um Ah uh, Mizen Triumph of Life Some are alive easy and slip into the world's skin as their own and plums. Mizen isn't one, or wasn't. Then what is life? I cried, cried Shelley, in one version of The Triumph of Life, the title of which from one angle is a satirical title. Triumphs in those days, like Romans, a chance to parade the victims, in this case, the victims of life, which are, from a mortal angle, everyone. Better never to have been, the old sage said. And each world rediscovers no river, no river twice. And yet it seems the same river, however much you are not the same. He's not so bleak, that sleek and laughing vegetarian poet. Oh, could you not learn to swim, you idiot? Singing yourself aboard ships you could sail but not sail home. Just like you to learn to sail and not to swim. Just like Ms. N to dive in after him. He being Shelley who infamously drowned. Mizen Hater. Mizen wants to be like Hazlitt, a great hater. There is so much to hate. The haters, the mingy minions of the lesser courts who attend the Chatterati, the fetid fauners, the kiss up, kick down, crapola crew, the given arrangements called the world. But most and first, herself. Shame, contempt, shame, contempt. Sistole diastole of a faulty pump, i.e. mizen, If she were true to herself, she would be a hermit, turn Isolado, take the narrow road to the deep north with Basho and his tired horse, leave deathless lines at every bambooed stop, catch the words of whores and kids en route and the lonely sound of rain. Oh, to take the path of a hundred weathered bones and nine orifices, to take a pseudonym under a banana tree, to travel true, anonymous as a variable, under the sign of an adopted tree one carries invisible on a bent back, a windswept spirit finally open to whatever. And this poem, Mizen Hermit, was the one that Sarah and Diane Vidyan um, so generously featured in Pratcrit, Crit. And it's, it's the one that probably uh, channels or carries or is infiltrated the most by lines and um, preoccupations of romantic poets and uh, contemporary concerns about revolution, um, where we've been, where we're going. And now... A hermit thrush, the monster never heard, nor Frankenstein, nor Keats, nor miz till this moment. Where are the songs of spring? I, where, and what are the songs of your climate? Let's ring the changes of the changing songs. Did you steep too long in the tea of your wrongs? Did you break your mind on hard rocks of thought? Did you find in old poets an ocean for swimming or drowning? And what am I that I should linger here? Mizan wonders when considering no longer lingering on this old earth. Let's say a hermit thrush says, fuck all, but still it's nice to hear on Bastille Day the revolution sends its flares still up. Far and near did many a heart in Europe leap to hear that faith and tyranny were trampled down as if, in retrospect, You can sort it all out. In the moment, it's fuzzy. Is that an alibi? Isn't it always clear who the tyrants are? Everyone feels the tyrant is someone else or necessary. Let's shock the corpse of the necessary. Shock ourselves into the unthought possible. My aspiration in life would be to be happy, says Beyoncé. Oh, life, liberty, the pursuit of, the pursuit of. Let's not talk about Coleridge and sadness. Let's not talk about Virginia Woolf and madness or Lord Byron's badness or Shelley's drowned and burnt heart. Mary Shelley wrote prodigiously, pampered her insipid surviving son. What should we do après le deluge? Victor left Geneva, alien, now alien in his natal home. The monster would have left for South America with his mate, but for her murder and his ice rage. Mary and Shelley left for France with Claire. Then they left for Italy. Keats left for Italy. Wordsworth left for France. Dorothy and Wordsworth and Coleridge left for Germany. Burns would have left for Jamaica. Wordsworth left the lakes, then never left but for a tour in Scotland. Scott never left, but to scrounge souvenirs from the battlefield of Waterloo. Southey would have left for the Susquehanna with Coleridge. Coleridge left for Malta. Byron left for the continent. Blake every day left this merely empirical earth. Claire could never leave the fields he saw ill-used and closed, his mind cracking along the fissures of a broken estate. Claire left for the asylum, and Claire left the asylum, and sometimes Claire left his mind. They all left for death. The lost treasure of revolutions left abandoned or bestowed. Sovereign voices, agonies, creations, and destroyings all at once pour into the wide hollows of my brain. They grow in her. They replace her head with electrified thought, her veins now full of blood they bled. Then what is life in the early 19th century, in the late 20th century, in Dante's Italy, in a Midwestern city? What is life? I cried, reading old Shelley. But um, ah, mizen, untethered to the real, balloon adrift in vacant clouds, who do you think you are? Solitary, the thrush, the hermit withdrawn to herself, avoiding the settlements of adulthood. The poet's self-centered seclusion was avenged by the furies of an irresistible passion pursuing her to a speedy ruin. Now a a short poem from a book forthcoming um, next year, Um, a, a book in a very different key, but I think... I'm assuming I'm not schizophrenic, it's coming from same, you know, some same mental archive, uh, but has different formal preoccupations, and um, uh, a short poem, partly an homage to the translations of the classical Chinese uh, poets, um, with the long titles and the short bodies of the poems. Taking a walk in the woods, after having taken a walk in the woods with you, now I cannot not see the blight everywhere. And then uh, two short more episodes from Ms. N. and a closing poem. Ms. N. Woman. One day Ms. N. meets a woman, slightly horse-faced, hair a tangle, eyes black pools, strong teeth and features. Who knew this was beauty? Not Ms. N. Not yet. Eros is a hard god. Eros is sly. It is always the case, Ms. N never feels the arrow right away. It takes days, weeks, months, years, then where that arrow hit, bang, oh now, oh now, Ms. N doth feel it. So hard to align the then and when. Yet sight of the stricken moment—for she was eternal, stricken—knew it by a dream. When making love with X, she woke and oh, not this, not oh, and there, unavoidable now, the new mouth she'd move through this new thing, new tongue, new lungs. Sucker punch, sucker dread, delight. Oh, Sappho, what do you want this time? A revelation can be violent. The tearing, the rending of the veil, Aletheia, the truth of the soul, lurching for what it wants, Kant, a pulse, and most the tube of the chest blown through, the body all instrument for this new breathing. And the final, or the the final poem before the envoy in Mizen is called Mizen Palinode, in the tradition of final poems uh, that are retractions by the poet. Ms. N. Palinode, just like you to sing a flower song of love, ignore the lash of labor you're not under, just like you to lean on a lyre, float in a meadow when the cracking world needs action, facts, just like you to set a course then lose yourself in siren's siren, your little privacies now whirling down the pool of something else required. Did you not think the world larger? Are the old songs all wrong? In her next life, Ms. N will be serious and public and save the republic, turn singularity into solidarity or retreat into a silence proper to a chaos that eludes any kiss or word of a kiss. Finally, a poem, some say, taking wing from fragments um, of Sappho that I've often found, as many have, incredibly generative in all kinds of ways, humanly, poetically, etc. cetera. Um, and this takes wing from a fragment typically translated. Uh, some say a host of horsemen, a horizon of ships under sail is most beautiful, but I say it is whatever you love. Some say. Some say a host of horsemen, a horizon of ships under sail, is most beautiful, and some say a mountain embraced by the clouds, and some say the badass booty-shaking shorties in the club are most beautiful, and some say the truth is most beautiful, dutifully singing what beauty might sound under stars of a day. I say what they say is sometimes what I say. Her legs long and bare, shining on the bed. The hair, the small tuft, the brown languor of a long line of sunlit skin. I say, whatever you say I'm saying is beautiful. And whither truth, beauty. And whither, wither, in the weather of an old day, sucker-punched by a spiral of Arctic air blown into vast florets of ice binding the Great Lakes into a single cracked sheet, the airplanes fly unassuming over. Oh, they eat and eat the steel mouths and burn what the earth spun eons to form. Some say calamity and some catastrophe is beautiful. Some say porn some jolly led. Some say beauty is hanging there at a dank bar with pretty and sublime those sad bitches left behind by the horsemen. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Maureen. I think Maureen's channeling there of Sappho's beautiful, some say dot, 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 reminds me of one of my favorite lines, and there are so many in our next poet, uh, Mark Waldron's body of work. Um, and I might be mangling here from memory, but it goes something like, death isn't what you think it is, it's what I think it is. <laughs> uh, and I think that quality of um, surprise and delight and turning things on their head is... Um, is what I and so many of his readers value about Mark Waldron's work. Um, he's the author of two previous collections, uh, *The Brand New Dark* and *The Itchy Sea*, uh, which together earned him the honor of recently being chosen as one of the PBS's new set of ten next-generation poets. Um, and My goodness, was that well deserved? Uh, and, um, I hope we'll be bringing Mark's work to, um, infinitely large publics from now on. Um, his latest book, Meanwhile Trees, is out from Bloodaxe today. Uh, so you can be among the first. Yeah, that probably deserves a cheer. (laughs) And being modeled on the, on the stand there. Um, Thank you so much for being here, by the way, and not being there. Uh, we're having much more fun, I think. Uh, but I'm, i am i i think it would help to tell yourselves as you listen to Mark, and he's such an amazing performer. Um, that the voices just heard at the edges of consciousness out there are all the various characters and alter egos that you meet in a mark waldron poem um these personae have names like marcy manning they're all sort of coded versions of mark in some way um but also buddy the stone hamlet uh they're they're as various as the uh lower stories of Mark Waldron's unconscious um, and just as disturbing and just as good to have a drink with. Um, So, yeah, without much further ado, let me hand you over to Mark.
0: Guns in Films. Guns in films aren't like real guns, no siree. For one thing, we can love them wholeheartedly. Also, unlike real guns that pierce their banging stones, guns in films are dirty only with our own delicious dirt. So, there's a 1970s Merc parked outside a gas station on a forest road. It's dusty and hot. The car is a wunderbar greyish-blue, yes, that blue. A man in a black leather jacket of a type worn by Germans in the 1970s and with a beard of the same period points his automatic pistol at a man in the Mercedes who ducks pathetically below the dashboard and sucks at the last stupid bit of life down there. The gun is a magnet that bends the fabric of the film and draws everything flying towards it. A gun in a movie is not the jam in a doughnut. It is the pip in the jam in the doughnut. The jam being the character's motivation, the dough being the script, the doughnut's surface being the scene's location, and the sugary coating, being you in the cinema, sprinkled on a seat, wanting everything. So, yeah, I thought I'd do mostly poems from the new book, but I may do I may do one new one as well. This next poem is about a character called Manning, who appears a few times in this book, and he's he he's a character who exists in different historical periods, sometimes in different historical periods within the same poem. And this poem's called Collaboration. It was 4pm when Manning and I sat down to discuss the poem and his role in it. An imaginary wind buffeted and rattled the remote French farmhouse window like some sort of device, like a signifier of something trenchant and solemn. Manning said he was so excited by the prospect of the poem that he was actually rock hard, as he put it. And what about I set it in a hotel room and sought him out with a Latvian stripper and half an ounce of good quality gack. And with that, quite matter-of-factly, he pulled his Johnson out of his zoo suit though my gaze I can assure you recoiled from it with more haste than a hand would from a hot coal, looked something like a monstrous jewel in the setting of the surrounding grey fabric of his trousers, or like perhaps a misplaced floral buttonhole that would have seemed less offensive had it protruded from the suit's lapel. It appeared to me that its grotesque rudeness buzzed against its, dare I say it, rather feminine beauty with a metallic ringing sound. But perhaps that was merely tinnitus brought on by the stress of the situation. (laughs) I'd never known Manning to talk or behave in this way before, and even though it soon came to me that he'd been suffering from concussion, having been hit full on the head by a lance in a jousting accident. And even though, within a day or so, he'd recover fully and return to his innately sensitive and feminist self, I still always felt a little wary in his company thereafter. For what I'd heard and seen that afternoon must surely have lain dormant in him through all the time I'd known him. And perhaps since then, I consequently feel a little less secure in the company of all my friends and acquaintances." as well, of course, as in the company of myself. So it's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. And it's great to be, you know, reading at a Pratt-Crit event and with such great poets. Um, The penis is a symbol that emerges quite often in my work and it's something I've tried to curtail, my editors draw my attention to it. He said he thought it was my flood subject. I didn't ask him what that meant, but I think I think it means something that, that just keeps recurring that you can't stop it. Um, and he's a, he's a Scottish Presbyterian type. I think, he never said anything, but I just had this sense of disapproval coming off him. And because of that, I've tried to keep them out of my second book and failed. And then they emerge in my third book again. I couldn't. Um, keep it at bay, that urge. I don't know what it's about. And now I'm, I'm starting to write poems having finished this book. And already <laughs> um, I've written one. And, and I, think this one, I think this poem may be something to do with my, a feeling of wanting to rebel against my own sense of disapproval in relation to this subject. It's called Buddies. Sometimes I have wished my dong an impossible leviathan that protruded with a person's girth from my loins where we'd be as conjoined twins conjoined. It would rise to my head height so that I might each morning as I lay in bed reach my arms around it, hug it tight Rest against my belly and my chest, rest my cheek against its helmet-sized helmet and hold it thus so that we might buttress one another against this world's stuffy opprobrium. <laughs> um, this poem's called All My Poems Are Advertisements For Me. When I was young, there was nothing exactly stupid about the world. In fact, in the good old days, there was the thump and the tug of it. The way it heaved itself like a stone, yanked, so to speak, in glory. The way it fell up, crushed up, and then crushed up again, getting newer and newer, louder and sweeter. The way it watched its own face fall between its fingers, as though its face were a handful of gold coins. I think I might have known the whole drag of everything going upwards, a tide that pulled me with it. Actually, I know I did. You were part of all this, by the way. And the sky, well, where to begin? The sky was so adult, not imbecilic or thin, or so-so, or girlish. Did I outgrow it? Did I drink it, shoot it, find a way round it? Did I get inside it and drive off in it? Forgive me, but on my way to work this morning, even though the sun was on fire and the trees were up, I was in the apocalypse. Death is Not what you think it is. It's actually what I think it is. Okay, last poem. It's called uh, No More Mr Nice Guy. This then. What you actually witness here before your very eyelids is an actual blooming waste of time in action, in real time. I squid you not, certain shall we say people with a certain shall we say cheek have had a go at me about punctuality and punctuation, specifically the use or otherwise of ampersands and obscenities and rubbish and whatnot, as well as my peculiar drinking and poking fun at people with or without disabilities and so on. Well, from now on, from the very next thing I do onwards, I'll do exactly as I blinking well please, which is to be marvellously wretched and frightened and broken and hidden. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Mark. My goodness. What would we do if uh, if Mark Waldron stopped writing poems about penises? The world would end. Another poet who does exactly as she blinking well pleases and is wonderful for it is Varney Capaldeo. And um, it's such a pleasure to, to have her here tonight um, in, in our Prakrit lineup. Um, Varney was born in Port of Spain, Trinidad, um, and came over to the UK for her academic work, um, which culminated in her PhD. Uh, and isn't this so great? In Old Norse. Um, and in her working for some years um, as a lexicographer at the OED. And something of that relationship with language and its tangles and its histories, its roots in both Senses of that potential pun, its um, its underground feelers and its paths through the world, uh, comes out very, very strongly in Varney's work, um, and is partly what I so admire and value, um, and have found influential in her poems. Um, until 2013, she was the author of five books of poems, um, including Utter, uh, which is a volume that I've spent much time with, and I encourage you uh, to do the same. Um, but this year, her latest book was released around January, right? Um, Measures of Expatriation, which, uh, and this is so deserved and uh hats off to the PBS selectors. They chose it as that quarter's choice, meaning that it is shortlisted for um, the 2016 T.S. Eliot Prize. uh, And that makes me hopeful about the direction of British poetry. Um, Amongst her many fellowships and honours, Varney has held uh, in recent years the Judith E. Wilson Fellowship at Cambridge University, which is how I first came to know her as a person, as well as a um, uh, a vividly embodied poetic voice. Uh, And I think in one of the lovely coincidences and chimings um, and and dialogues that, that happens across the pages of Prakrit, Um, over time is that in his deep note um, Ron who we began with um, had this sentence I want you to hear how expatriate is just a Latinate way to soothe rootlessness and temper loss and Varney Capaldeo, in Measuring Expatriate and Expatriation, I think shows not only how we can temper loss, but turn it into a gain and into something incredibly powerful and compelling um, and the source of really, really powerful poetry, um, which we're going to hear now. Varney.
6: Thank you so much, Sarah, Davidian, Vidyan, Prakrit, John and the LRB. The sound of breaking glass is normally considered an effective form of exorcism, so we should all leave here well exorcised. <laughs> I'm starting with a small poem about a picture which you can visit in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. The last night, a nightingale red-vented bulbul gouache on paper early 19th century ashmolean museum oxford you begin with the design the artist's strokes a kind of preening that elicits frictive glosses from your close-up wings whoever drew you also caged you this free-hand desert colour time box partly pinkish like your eggshells through a set of lilac lines and dawn and dusk you look sideways. Sweet, invasive, and entirely silenced thing, I've company to place beside you. Not yet. Passerine bird, in your passage from Persian to English you're no longer a nightingale, though you'll warble and curl your toes. While you perch, I'm minded to bring you a tree and a night and a song to be yours. The memorable one, flung out by your namesake from a moonstruck twig. That time our deaths were forecast on the news. So we went for a walk and rested in you, our everything lyrical forever. Cities in step. For the wayward sisters, Talk about sleeping. You dream in black and white. I dream in fauve and phosphor. Cities where people are held for interrogation. Cities where taxi drivers and policemen systematize the criminality. Cities where the friends I can depend on meet for the first time, outside and by chance mispronouncing hello. Cities where the script is not quite Roman, crying out is currency, and so are sweets. I dream cities overwhelmingly, not people. You dream of flowers, dreaming you are a girl. Clothes shopping, you say, what colour suits me? You see, what colour suits me is, I see no one enter, colour. Is, try the shop three miles away, colour. Is, who would your friend like to sign up for the newsletter and the prize draw, colour. Is, you probably aren't looking for anything expensive, colour. Is, oh sorry, I thought you were together, colour. You. "'Aren't you with him?' "'His hair disinterred from a scalp hung in basements, "'his skin pocked and bubbling, spread under soil, "'his shoulders reaching down to smoosh his elbows, "'his hands growing in your direction.' "'How else do we know you are here? "'Didn't you come with him into our sunglasses shop? "'Our expensive sunglasses shop. "'Isn't he the one wanting polarized designer lenses? "'Why are you behaving as if you are not with him? "'He came in behind you. "'Aren't you together? "'Step from there. "'Absolutely no change and a good face on it. "'Absolutely no change.' Let's go for a picnic. Absolutely no change. We have the same basket. Absolutely no change. How was your day? Did you do, have, get, like, buy, eat, drink, make up, make out like you don't dream cities overwhelmingly? We have spread a cloth on the ground. Share another cloth over our knees. Pass a flask without commenting fireflies their matchbox likeness, pulled out like a thought of thinking or of polar exploration, Scott of the Antarctic, the taste of chocolate dismissing him, death seeming more new world, more Aztec, something my company will not translate. Talk about sleeping, being happy. I dream giraffes mostly, having put one together from sand under sea water dappled by sunlight at paddling depth, or having seen it rise up. Amiable, companionable, with a friendliness seldom measured by scientists, a long-lashed, essentially solitudinous, yet occasionally leaning giraffe. Truly, I wanted to build bridges reinforced with bamboo and a castle using the classic spade and bucket where living shells cut or sink tiny silent circles hissing with air. And what happened? The color of black happened. Rainbow, which is black, happened, changed texture happened, propulsive odour happened to invade hopes of building. We were playing on the beach and found oil, and looking at the map's edge we'd often drawn in schoolroom pencil, where, grown-up, we'd come to play, suddenly the air filled with technologized wings, the sand spurted into wells, though that moment... It was still. We were alone, nor been told to frack off. Step from there. No dream of flowers. Dream we are both girls, not people. Girls overwhelming cities, crying out, sweetening sleep. I'm not going to torture you with either of the two massive long poems which I printed out, but some more short ones. You might have seen the field postcards which used to be sent in the First World War. You could send them back if you were a soldier. They were like multiple choice tests. You had to cross out anything that didn't apply. And if you put absolutely anything else, it would not be sent. Field Postcard Nothing is to be written on this side except the date and signature of the sender. Sentences not required may be erased. If anything else is added, the postcard will be destroyed. So carry marigolds, show sorrow, hide July war in flowers at home, their code is tender. Nothing is to be written on this side, except the date and signature of the sender. April he fell in flames, lilies of the valley implied humility, poppies oblivion, tender your papers, no letter lately wounded, no parcel well erased, apple blossom admitted, rose follows, iris destroyed. Nothing is to be written on this side. Except the date and signature of the sender. Sentences not required may be erased. If anything else is added, the postcard will be destroyed. Two more little ones. This one's based on a still life also in the Ashmolean Museum by a painter who was the third generation in a. A famous family of Dutch painters. A table of my own. In the year, it's the closest to get to a penis poem, I swear. A table of my own. In the year of my marriage, Galileo died. No man is a solar system. My days turn full around women averagely called Margaret. I long to be isolate. This crew pearls into men's launder clavichords and pails. am naught, a nutshell castaway. There are sailing men who've swilled and shot alongside she pirates. My father's hands show blue its green. He harbors precision like a siege device. No sun in my canvas, no skull competitively spitting orange-pail. No silence broken, sitter and schooled to lose its string. Just night, this night, which is to me like a cheese shop to a mouse. It fills a corner. After a game with a rough fellow, is a single glass, this glass, oh, it is the measure of my universe. Till now, I had not known the meaning of adoration. I drink like an astronomer at a table of my own. The next poem, which is my last one tonight, is looking forward to the radical Shakespeare event on the 1st of June at the South Bank Centre, which is free. It's got two people in it. Not the event, that's had lots of people in it. Actions, no consequence. Don't change direction, because any second... Take out night. Erase dark. Scratch still. Put a line through moon. Remove leaf. Now, take out nerves. Erase damage. Scratch solitude. Put a line through marvelous. Remove luminous. Dance! Take out numerals, erase deities, scratch cuneiform, put a line through meaning, remove harappa, you. Take out naked, erase dazzled, scratch soft, put a line through my, remove love, have it, well done, same difference, out of time. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much, Varney. Uh, no man is a solar system. Such a wonderful line. Um, if the poet is an astronomer, as Varney suggested, we're about to uh, take that optic tube and flip it round and turn it into a microscope and get up close and possibly personal with our poets now in the way that Prakrit does best. Um, and my co-editor, Di George, is going to do this. And you know in um, Greek mythology, there are, the, there are those three sisters, I think they're called the Grai, who have one eyeball between the three of them. We're about to do that with this microphone. So forgive us as we orchestrate some complex choreography of getting it from one poet to another. Um, uh, Di.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Um, yeah, and a, a quick thank you my, from, from me, actually, of, of the sort that Sarah gave at the start of the night, um, because if whatever she said about the best choice being getting me and Vid on board, it's, I think, returned a hundredfold from us to Sarah, because it's been such a fab thing to be a part of. Um Yes, my my gen- generic gratitude is actually going to segue quite neatly, I hope, into the first question. Because I'm looking out at the, in the crowd and seeing so many people who've given their time and expertise with poetry so generously to Prakrit. Um, it's just reminded me of how much goes into every issue and how grateful I am for everyone doing that Um I'm also grateful to the poets actually in a, in a quite specific way because what we do that's quite unique I suppose is we ask people to share their poetry to publish it with us some of it for the first time and also to open themselves up to a critical encounter in the same sort of breath I suppose um, you you get the poem you enjoy the poem and you read side by side somebody's take on it be it an interviewer or the critic. Um, so my question to kick things off, and then I'm going to pass the microphone down the line. I think you might have to stand up so that people can get a sense of you and uh, yeah, and and your answer. But um, is <laughs> when you are writing, then how aware are you of that critic who might be on the other side of our pain and? Interpreting your poem, or is it something you try to put out of mind as much as possible? Would anyone like to dive in with that?
4: <laughs> no. No, <Know> what? <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll oh, okay. Just to say, I mean, it's a wonderful question and a complicated one, and I would say neither, which is to say, um, I neither feel that I'm putting asleep a critical faculty or trying to do an end run around it I feel that that is suspended Um, and that's a possibility of initial movements in composition that might come back later but not in these initial moments When I'm doing the first
6: draft of a poem I can't really think about anything else and then the first critic I do think of when I stop is usually my mother
3: (laughs) My turn I began writing poems. Um, I began writing essays on poems. I was a, a, a very big geek in high school, and uh, I loved the surgical act of, of responding to poems, taking it apart and putting them back together, reverse engineering it. So I, I think that when I write, I can't help that on first pass. Like I'm, I'm sort of thinking about some alternate version of me, not invited to parties and instead on weekend reading poems or something, and like th- trying to make give that person, that ghost version of me, not, not like Manning at all, but someone else, uh, um, fodder to work with. And I think I've got to dial that back as the revisions go on, and try to think more about like what was the impulse, what was the instinct, what was the heart of it. And I think reading widely poets whose work um, feels much more natural and unorchestrated, is, is a humbling thing, and I'm trying to navigate those two impulses.
0: Um, everything the other three said, basically. <laughs> but um, Bonnie's mother is your critic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, um, I forgot what the. Oh uh, uh, yeah, the other yes. Um, not r- really. I. I, I think. Um, I'm probably just thinking about get um getting the thing out and uh and um and exclusively that. I mean sometimes after after you've writ- after I've written it I think, oh, how's that gonna be received? I've always done workshops um until the last few months. So um for many years I've taken all my poems to to workshops to be looked at by other poets and uh even though they, may, they, might give you, they might only give you specific feedback, you still get a general sense of whether they think it's okay or not or not okay. And I think sometimes I've found myself wondering whether I was kind of writing for them and having to um, slightly try and pull back on that. And um, Because there is a way that people write poems at the moment. Um, certainly in this country, and I'm sure in America, maybe in this country influenced by america and so you know i'm sort of contra- what am i rabbiting on about i thought i wasn't going to be able to say anything now i can't stop but just a slight feeling of re- wanting to resist that thing i suppose um, thanks
1: mark and um, i think we do have time for a, a question or two from the audience um you be- i think the poets will be glad to know that um we've we've we, we need to wrap up soon and get on to the, the mingle and buy part, um, but I think if anybody had a burning question that they'd like to ask, n- now would be your time, speak now, or forever hold your peace and buy the book <laughs> Okay Oh, we have a question, thank you very much um, Yeah. Sh- sh- shall I bring the mic?
4: Yeah <laughs>
0: It's a question about criticism. I love reading good criticism. I think there's a lot of good poetry around. There is very, very poor criticism. It's good that Prat Crit exists because it's changing that a little bit. Um, I need to turn this into a question, but I can't.
2: (laughs) Would you like to comment on my observation?
1: (laughs) How does your mum feel about it, Varney?
2: Anna, maybe we could ask you if there's anything in the critical landscape that irritates you at the moment and what utopianly you would do to make it better.
6: But really, there are two things that I would change. And one is if people aren't paid to write criticism properly paid to write criticism, they simply are not going to do it. Uh, they'll be taking a train with a sandwich packed uh, and herring off the country to do small workshops with people because that's what what will affect their mortgage or their care bills or whatever else it is. Uh, but I, I don't know how other people write reviews. It never takes me less than three days, uh, by which I actually mean 72 hours. I don't mean 15 that that's not sustainable unless you are married to an art dealer or some other sort of dealer. Really, <laughs> uh, the, the other thing that I think, and I mean, with this is a context of of book selling and criticism and active reading as well as writing. But the other, so, so this really doesn't apply here. But the other thing I would say is, is the tendency to identify the biographical figure and body, and voice of a poet. Whereas, I mean, I do not really think that Nigel Slater's cakes resemble <laughs> Nigel Slater. <laughs> I, I'm inspired by the cakes next door. And, and, and too often, I, I shouldn't really call out indiv- individual reviewers, but I shan't. But people seem to go looking. They go looking for traces of colonialism, or traces of Shakespeare, or a father or a house uh, and hilariously they'll imagine a house is in Trinidad when actually it's in Glasgow something like that Uh, it's quite unnecessary, people should just close read, they should be locked up with uh, nothing sorry, I'll pass the microphone (laughs) now so so there
3: was a there was a piece, I don't know who wrote it I just know it was from Canada And there was something in this piece that was lamenting the way in which a lot of literary criticism involved the first person I. And the premise of this piece was that he just didn't care about your story or that he didn't care about the first person I as an introduction or some kind of catalyst into literary criticism. And I started reading it and I couldn't find myself disagreeing more. I feel like that is the the eye is the prism through which I find a great deal of interest in why someone uh, responds to a work of literature. Um, not the eye as a projection or an invention of what's not there, but as as a way in, as a kind of entry point. And so I find myself I don't know dis- disagreeing with that point. And I, I, I there are a great many essays that uh, reviews uh, the LA Review of Books has has wonderful literary criticism. Um, switching genres there's a a magazine called Kill Screen which reviews which is literary criticism for video games looking at video games as as works of art or or in a cultural context and that to me is unbelievably energizing so yeah I read criticism of poetry but I also try to think about how film criticism or video game criticism is also enlivened um, and vivified by human beings who are interacting with the work not just displaying their their brilliance. I think there's risk when someone says, "I don't understand this. Let me reckon with it."
4: I guess um, following on and echoing um, both Vani's and Ron's points, uh, I certainly would. Uh, I mean, one one of the amazing things about Prakrit is its unbelievably refined commitment to nuance and focus but also creating a space for uh, actually an experimental criticism and I was the, the kind of subject and beneficiary of that myself. Um, the poet and critic Jeff Dolvin wrote, um, was commissioned to write um, a piece accompanying a poem of mine and he wrote this kind of extraordinarily inventive Piece. It was not in standard normative critical prose, but was incredibly illuminating and spine-straightening. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, the New York Times, I can tell you from personal experience, will not publish. Um, but they, so I, I would, uh, so another salute to Pratt Critt. And also the LARB is publishing really interesting things as well. And to echo in another key, perhaps, something Vani said, um, I really w- would, uh, I'm always very relieved when I see the work Reviewed and not the biography or the notional biography and the reputation. And one thing I'm actually fascinated by um, intellectually and sociologically is uh, the defenses we have against reading, uh, precisely by ostensibly professional critics. Um, so I'm very interested to see people actually able to um, enact their thought in prose. And I was just telling my partner recently a recent article, and I'm really hoping it was in the LRB, I think it was, Jacqueline Rose on, uh, the literature, uh, around trans. Uh, phenomena and, and an extraordinary essay and, and I also like Ron often find the most vivifying criticism uh, alas often not around literature. Emily Nussbaum in the New Yorker on television for example um, there's another thing too to say about modes of, of critical prose and, and where they can happen um, and one really for me vivifying thing and one won't find this in weekly or monthly or annual reviews but the, the experimental critical tradition um, whether it be somebody like Guy Davenport or Susan Howe's book my Emily Dickinson or Ann Carson's short talks and the question is um, what are we talking about when we talk about criticism and there's an obviously um, pervasive banalized um, circle jerk, pardon me of, of criticism that prevails in a lot of um, you know uh, debased journalistic spheres and that's why places like the LRB, Pratt Crit the LRB are, are both uh, there's, I think this is an opportunity and instead of the lament of the death of Pratt Culture it's like well you know what stab it in the heart and do something better. You know, um, That not that I actually think that as a really old school person, but I'm very skeptical about that and, and I really appreciate also Pratt critt's online reach. And now I'll close.
0: <laughs> um, well, they've said everything again. It's, it's fantastic <laughs> being on the end of the line. Um, but no, I think Pratcrit's amazing. I, I don't really see anything else in this country that um I found as interesting as the criticism I've read there, and nothing in that in that kind of depth and like you said Maureen, I love the Jeff Dolvan piece about your work and um yeah
1: thanks Mark and thanks everyone Sarah, Would you like to have a, a final closing word?
2: Um, thank you so much for being here everybody uh and um i'd like to give new meaning to the term close reading uh, as you all come up here and get close to these books and close to a glass of wine and close to our wonderful poets who I think we should thank one more time. um, Mark Waldron, Maureen McLean, Ron Villanueva, Varney Capaldeo.
1: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.